Section 11 of The Heirloom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Andre Floria. Chapter 11. Is He Mad? The bleak, autumnal winds blew wildly across the Vernwood Hills. The summer, with all its warmth, with all its vitality, had gone. The harvest had been reaped, the sheaves had been carried, the golden store had been garnered in. In place of summer luster, an autumnal sadness, an air of desolation rested upon the wind-stricken woods and fields. Here and there, except where the bright dark leaves of the holly shone in the weaker sunlight, or the clinging tendrils of the ivy festooned from the stronger trees, sere and yellow leaves hung onto their denuded parental branches as if for very life. Summer, we said, had died away, and there seemed to have departed from the soul of nature the overflowing breath of life. With the approaching signs of winter, there filled too the hearts of some whose histories and affairs intertwined so closely with our narrative, a desolation, the depths and darkness of which we cannot depict in words. For Vernwood, there seemed as if there had faded out of it the very sun of its life, as if there had come upon it a cloud, which quelled its gladness, overshadowed its brightness, neutralized its surpassing beauty, and enshrouded its daily existence as if in some funeral canopy of impenetrable gloom. Bertram Gnault, who hitherto has most conspicuously figured in the foregoing chapters, became each day an altered man. To those who knew him best, it was plain that, notwithstanding his material prosperity, the desolation of his spirit was day by day undoing his physical frame. To those who regarded him, knew him as he had been, and now knew him as he was, there rankled in his bosom the canker of a hopeless despond. There gnawed the worm of a despair that dieth not, and there burned and smoldered the fire that is not quenched. The daily tasks and duties which he personally undertook were performed in a lost abstractness of mood. Unerring as might have been the business faculty within him, it was evident that in every action, in the performance of every duty of his life, his thoughts wandered far away, far into some vague, indefinite unknown, that notwithstanding his growing wealth, his, to himself at least, was a miserable, nay, a blasted life. As for the old man, Marjorie's father, week by week he seemed to be sinking, as it were, dropping out of life. As these pages are designed more to entertain, to brighten, rather than to harrow up the darkest recesses of the soul, we will refrain from depicting here all the hopes and fears, the successive lights and shadows, the darker hours and the brighter sunstreaks, which swept across his darkening mind. Lights and clouds which passed across his mental vision like the fleeting cloudlets which sweep athwart the face of a spring-day sky. During these long, black, dreary days, Bertram Gnault wandered about as one lost. Then at last, for the old man, the end came. The silver cord was loosed, 
the sun of another long day kissed the horizon, and he passed quietly away out of life, sinking as a watery and tearful sun which reaches the horizon bereft of its glory, its refulgence quelled by tempest, dulled by storms. We will not lift, or if only for a moment, draw aside the veil, nor intrude into the sanctity of the darkened room, for the shadows had fallen when his spirit passed away to rest. Almost alone, Bertram stood by the couch of death, for where was the gentle hand that could have most smoothed the pillow of the dying? Where was the face that could have lightened and alleviated the dark passage of the soul? Again and again he asked for his daughter, his darling, but where was the absent child? And so he sank, passed away, let us hope to where regrets are unknown, and where there is not a care. Then there came the few dark solemn days of watching, through which the soulless body waits only on sufferance within the woe-stricken dwelling of its former state. And then they bore all that remained of him away, out of the hall, where the grim, old, armored effigies almost seemed mournfully to lower their tall, pennoned lances over the bier of the dead, out across the lawn with its tall, bare, leafless trees, where in all their freshness and beauty he had spent the summer days, over the Ionic marble bridge, where in its beauty it spanned the broad, clear stream, on which the lovers toyed and trifled in happy evening hours, up the hilly wooded road by the woodbine archway where the dower house nestled in among the trees, then on upward where instead of summer zephyrs the chill winds shook the oaks, and sang and whistled inharmonious music through the gaunt and naked branches of the trees, till near the wild hilltop, where in the groves the tall, lank beeches bowed their heads and the somber, solemn yew-trees cast their funeral shadows on the graves, where avenues of cypress seemed to watch the dead, and fit emblems of mortality, the fallen, autumn leaves lay thickly scattered on the ground. In the mausoleum vaults, where rested the bones of those old knights whose armor stood and rusted in the hall, among Bertram's own ancestry, there they put him down to rest. And so Bertram, almost a solitary mourner, returned. Returned almost alone to the blank silence of his home over which there seemed to have settled a gloom almost deeper, almost more oppressive than the gloom of death, in which there seemed to be felt the absence of a joy almost greater than the absence of life. The spring, the summer, the autumn passed, the winter came, the cold winds blew, and the great white snowflakes came whirling through the gusty air. With all his accumulating wealth, Bertram Gnault seemed like a ruined life. Other men in his circumstances might have tossed it lightly off, but not so the young heir of Vernwood, Bertram Gnault. His affections seemed to be of that strong kind, which cannot so lightly forget their earliest, truest, only love. He might have indulged in the sports and pleasures of the social life within his easy reach, for, of course, the reappearance of a proven rightful heir to Vernwood, his shrewd conduct of his affairs, his phenomenal prosperity, and his fame went forth through all the countryside. 
But like many masterminds, like those who seem to stand mentally, if I may so express it, a head and shoulders above their fellows, Bertram Gonault had his idiocracies, and now that all life's brightness seemed to have been extinguished, departed from him, his existence day by day became more and more almost that of a recluse, burying himself in the wooded seclusion of the dower house, with Jules Massey as his almost sole companion or attendant, or wandering in a spiritless, dejected mood down to the mansion, roaming through the deserted shrubberies, or haunting, almost like some spirit, the now darkened and tenantless rooms. Then alone he would stride up the broad, oaken, carpeted stairs, and his solitary footfall would echo along the corridors, and he would reverently steal almost with the dread of seeing some ghostly ancestral form start up before him, as his disordered fancy would conjure up the distorted impossibilities of a racked and weakened mind, or he would glance up fearfully, almost expecting to see the courtly ruffled figures in the portraits that smiled so placidly and benignly on him, step out from their tarnished frames. Then he would steal almost devoutly along to the little corner room that was known as hers, a kind of sanctum or boudoir, whence, through the diamond-glazed casements over the balcony, in happy days, she looked out upon the woods and trees and flowers, where she painted, or read, or worked, or played, and where, by his imperative commands, everything awaited untouched. Not even a speck of dust had been removed. All awaited the long, long day of her return. There, now drooping and withered, lay the bouquet which she had gathered and arranged, when in all its summer freshness with her own hands. There, by the harp unstrung, lay the last songs she had sung. There, the music of the last melodies she had played. There were painted flowers, and everywhere the hundred trivialities commonly so conspicuous by their absence, in almost any other state, which a true, pure woman knows so intuitively how to dispose and how to display. There were all these things, but the actual presence, the actual divinity which created and shed around itself as a halo, the spirit and the charm, was gone. Gone. Then, as the gloomy, stormy autumn days rolled past, and there opened, nay, there even seemed to smile, a brighter, newer year with its vain, vague hopes of betterment, Bertram's mental condition somewhat changed changed from that brooding, boding, despondent melancholy, with now and then an intervening ray of hope, to an even blanker, wilder, more furious despair, where any clue or any promise or any hope of Marjorie Gillingham's whereabouts appeared, or even glimmered. His wealth was poured out like water, and counting that wealth against his passion, it was only in his eyes as the veriest dross. But the lavishment of his passion, and his madness, and his wealth, all seemed alike fruitless, all alike vain. For there seemed to envelop the strange, mysterious fact of her disappearance, of her vanishment, a veil which no professional acumen could penetrate, no sagacity which his money could purchase or employ could fathom. Then gradually, week by week, day by day, 
Nay, almost hour by hour, he felt stealing upon him what others could not perceive. They saw the paling, haggard cheek. They saw the gloom-stricken, downcast air. They saw the dejected mane. But they saw not that which, vampire-like, was hovering over him, gaining possession of him day by day. They saw not that which he felt, that internal conviction of mental aberration, which he came to know only too plainly, and only too surely, as if by some fatal intuition was coming over him, gaining upon him hour by hour. Then he wandered aimlessly away from Vernwood, recking not, wadding not, scarce heeding, scarce knowing which way his footsteps led, and solitary, alone, not even Jules Massey near him, moped about many English towns, caring not for their characteristics and beauties, heedless of their lions, but always yearning for something which he was conscious was forever and forever lost. At length, a visit to London found Bertram in the antechamber of a great specialist on cerebral affections, seeking the advice of a great authority on disorders of the brain. The verdict of the eminent specialist, coached in the scientific phraseology of his profession, was short, unambiguous, definite, and decisive beyond all misconception or shadow of doubt. Unless strong curative measures in the shape of total change of scene, circumstances, and mode of life were adopted instantaneously, complete, probably chronic, mental aberration must supervene. In other words, this meant unmistakably that unless Bertram took immediate change, he would go permanently, irrevocably mad. Mental afflictions are perhaps felt and known first by those whom they threaten, and the verdict was one which Bertram himself perhaps best foreknew. Pocketing an enormous fee, the great physician of minds rang his bell, and Bertram, by a tall, powdered attendant in resplendent livery, was bowed out obsequiously into the square. Mad. Mad. Bertram Gnault, a raving maniac. Mad. Permanently mad. Whatever might have been his silent mental convictions, his dreamings, the horrible, terrible words grated, dinned, resounded in his ears. He stood on the pavement of the fashionable London Square, deeply absorbed in thought, from that hour certainly, if not in the sense predicted by the eminent mental specialist for whose opinion he had just paid that enormous fee, Bertram Gnault must have gone mad. Delegating the personal management of his estates at Vernwood to subordinates, in the selection of his subordinates Bertram seemed ever almost as if favored by luck, the heir again turned his back on his beautiful, but in his eyes now desolated ancestral home. With all its beauty, with all its freshness, with all its innocent enjoyments of rural English life, he did what many heirs before him had done. He had discarded all that a dozen generations of his race had bequeathed to him and done for him, to plunge madly, headlong, wildly into the vortex of the fatal, terrible maelstrom of what is called pleasure, of what is called life. In the London world, where visitations of comedic and exceptional brilliancy are almost yearly seen to soar like rockets in the social sky, to shine for a time in social space, then die out and disappear, leaving nothing but a crash, a wreck of debris or sparks, 
or only smoke to tell that they have been. In that world, Bertram Gernault astonished even those accustomed to view such brilliant, meteoric flights by the exceptional splendor of his displays. To particularize these in detail would take far beyond the limits of our space. His various receptions and reunions became known as the most costly and extravagantly conducted in the west end of town. His riparian picnics and water parties were the most sumptuous and enjoyable along the banks of the Thames. His dinners were the most expensive and recherche of any given either within or outside the clubs. His stud and teams were unsurpassed, almost unequaled by any in the row or in the park. All that which the world called its pleasures, Bertram Gnault supplied to the world for its delectation, for the enjoyment of others, with unstinting hand. Whether he himself enjoyed or whether there gnawed at his heart the worm that dieth not, whether there still burned within his very soul the fire that is not quenched, whether the agony of his desolation pursued him, dogged him with relentless persecution, these are questions which scarcely dare we ask, or whether in the few silent solitary moments which fell to him out of the din of life, there did not start up, there did not stare him in the face, the grim and horrid specter of his despair. Men looked at each other and asked, for Bertram Gnault did not entertain upon unpaid bills or the credit of some afterwards-to-be-forgotten day. No, his liabilities were met punctually, even generously, as the days came round. Men asked each other, whence comes wherewith all this is paid? Report and gossip even went so far as to assert that the newly appeared heir to the old Vernwood property and stock had struck upon his Welsh property rich and inexhaustible veins of gold. Gossip in this, as gossip generally does, asserted something that was false as well as something that was true. Some hinted that the apparently limitless wealth which he squandered was the proceeds of some gigantic Anglo-American fraud. His friendship became the target and ambition of those social freelances, the moneylenders, the bookmakers, the parasites which exist on the doubtful borderland of society and comprise its fringe and its refuse and scum, who gloat on the ruin and pillage of the necessitous and distend their foul carcasses by devouring the crop of verdant youth, which, as surely as the years come round, spring up and sport for a time on the surface of London social life. Had it not been that in the bowels of that barren and worthless-looking Vernwood earth, the present heir had discovered, and had the wit to turn to its best account, the rich deposits which for ages had lain hidden beneath its ground, and waiting only to enrich him. Had he not discovered that which his ancestors, Lawrence Gnault and Hubert Gnault, had failed to find, or being too thoughtless or too careless to utilize, what in its riches in ore was almost tantamount to the discovery by him of the philosopher's stone. Bertram Gnault, like his father Hubert Gnault had done before him, Bertram would again and again have been compelled to flee the country in debt and disgrace, nor were his excesses confined to one capital or one country or one society alone. At Rome, he became conspicuous as the mad American whose freaks of extraordinary extravagance became the talk and the amusement and the scandal of both native and foreign community. 
while on the Corso his servants and retainers appeared in liveries, the grotesqueness of which revived medieval splendors or seemed an attempt at the quaint uniforms of the Vatican. At Monte Carlo, Hamburg, and some of the German spas, where all Europe seems to assemble to minister in gambling hells to the worst passions of humanity, there Bertram Gnault spent fortune after fortune of any ordinary man over the insane vow to break the bank, a promise which many madmen both before and since his time had sworn to accomplish and failed to perform. At Paris, daily in the Bois de Bologna, his teams were the envy and admiration of the connoisseurs in equine beauty. In such forms as these did his madness, for truly he had done nothing less than gone mad, of Bertram Gnault's vent itself to the amusement or pleasure or profit of an army of parasites who followed in the wake of his comedic splendor with the pertinacity of a pack of hungering wolves or swarmed around him like vampires thirsting for his gold. End of section 11.